Welcome to the Calvary Baltimore Sermon Podcast with our senior pastor, Josh Plantholt. Great to have you with us. Calvary meets in the Joppa-Falston area north of Baltimore. If you're nearby, come join us. For all the details, go to our website at calvarychapelbaltimore.org. And now, here's this week's teaching. We're going to switch it up a little bit today. I gave myself a Father's Day present. We are going to be out of Revelation today. And this isn't a trick. This is, this is genuine. And uh, we're going to read a story that's very near and dear to my heart. So if you would, please turn with me to the book of Numbers, starting at chapter 22. Oh, here it goes. You all awake? Good. <laughs> um, before we jump in, it's helpful to understand all that has happened leading up to the events of today's story. Uh, in the book of Numbers, of course, the Israelites are out of Egypt. They're in the desert. They're wandering the wilderness. And God is literally making it rain food every day from heaven. And he does this every day, but the Sabbath, so that they rest on the Sabbath. So the day before, it rains double, uh, which is just favorite day of the week. Uh, and then, in the wilderness, during the day, they have a big giant cloud that they follow when they walk. And then at night, there's a giant pillar of fire that they follow. It's a night light for them. Uh, and so God is literally... Uh, leading them, is shepherding them around the wilderness. Now, this goes on for 40 years. And then by the book of Numbers, the Israelites are finally ready. And they are moments away from leaving the wilderness and entering into the promised land, the land of Cana. So they're, they're, they, they start their journey to enter into the land. This is where the book of Numbers, uh, where, where we're at, it picks up. And then Numbers 21. The Israelites seek passage through the land of the Amorites. And so they send messengers to the king of the Amorites and say, listen, we just want to walk through your country. We will not eat your food. We will not take your grapes. We will not drink your water. We will not step foot off of your highway. We just, just, we just want to get to that land. We're going to leave you alone. And the Amorites didn't just say no. They raised up an army and attacked the Israelites. And surprise, surprise, the Israelites won the battle. And this begins a long series of military conflicts as they make their way into the land of Canaan. Now, quickly after the Amorites, the next opposing people were the warriors of Bashan. Surprise, surprise, the Israelites won. And so the Israelite, so Israel is starting to make their, their journey to leave the wilderness, slowly making their way to Cana, and armies are going, uh-oh, and they're raising up, and, and they're fighting them, and Israel keeps winning. Then, Numbers 22, Balak, the king of Moab, He's a crafty one. He sees how dominant the Israelites are in war and that they have so many people. And because he sees that his country is next, next in line to meet their doom, the Israelites uh, were at the border of Moab. So Numbers 22 states that the people of Moab were in dread because the Israelites were so many. The Moabites knew they could not win this battle. So King Balak 
concocted a truly wicked plan. He, he sends messengers to Balaam the prophet and asks him to come and curse the Israelites for me. King Balak understood. It shows there's some wisdom here. Not, not a lot, but there's some. He understands that he needs divine intervention to win this fight. And so he reaches out to a prophet to influence the will of the gods. Now, the prophet Balaam, the prophet Balaam had some sort of relationship with God, and God had given him some sort of accuracy in his prophecy, so much so that he had the reputation of being a powerful man. But it's important to note that Balaam was not a godly man. Uh, he, he, was a, he was a wicked mercenary prophet for hire. You wanted to curse somebody, he was your guy. You'd call up Balaam, 1-800-BALAAM-CURSE-NOW, and he'd, he'd show up, and who is it? Boom, they got boils. He would curse people for hire. And clearly, from the text, people could hire Balaam for such services. But as we will read in the case of Israel, God forbid anything bad spoken about them. But after two sets of messengers, Balaam, Balaam keeps sending messengers to Balaam. You got to come, Balaam, I need you. You got to come, Balaam, I need you. And finally, after two sets of messengers, uh, Balaam was instructed by God, fine, go to Moab. He's not going to listen to no anyways. And so, uh, so, uh, he, so Balaam travels to Moab to prophesy for him for money. Now, what happens next is one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. Uh, and where we pick up. Numbers chapter 22, verse 22. But God's anger was kindled because he, because he went. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way of his adversaries. God told Balaam to go, and then God was mad that he went. Now when you read that, you go, why is he so upset? He just told him to go. Well, 2 Peter 2.15 tells us why God was mad. Because Balaam was traveling on God's word, but he wanted money. He was a prophet. He was going to be sent as a prophet for God, but what he really wanted was his own prophets. <laughs> he wanted cash. It seemed he was wondering how much money he could make from this whole ordeal. And then God became angry because he does not want his people given over to lust for money. Now, let's keep reading. 22. Now he was riding on the donkey, and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a sword drawn in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. So there's three people, and only the donkey sees the angel with his sword drawn. And the donkey, rightfully so, panics and goes off the road because he doesn't want to die. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. So the donkey is the wise one here and, and, and leads him off the road. Balaam now starts punching the donkey, probably in the head, to get it to turn back onto the road. Verse 24, then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and Balaam's foot uh, pressed up and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall, and he struck her again. So now the second time the angel of the Lord appears, the, there's not much room for the donkey to go one way or the other, so he crunches Balaam's foot, and he gets really mad again and starts punching the donkey again. Verse 26, Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place, 
and uh, where there was no way to turn either right or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. And Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck the donkey with his staff. So the donkey, not able to go left or right or backwards because he's got two servants behind him, the donkey just falls down, lays down. Balaam now gets so mad. You ever have one of those days, you know, you try, the coffee pot explodes, you got a flat tire. This is one of these days for him. And now the donkey lays down. He picks up a big stick and tries to kill his donkey. He starts beating his donkey to death. Now listen to this. This is awesome. This is classic God. Then the Lord appeared, opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, what have I done to you? That you have struck me these three times. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? Can you imagine your dog talks to you after you yell at it? <laughs> now Balaam is so out of his mind. He's so furious. He looks like he's trying to kill his donkey with a stick. And he, he's so, the donkey then speaks to him, and, and, and I love this, I love what he says, what have, you, what have I done to you that you have beat me these three times? And Balaam said to his donkey, I love that, <laughs> he's so bad, he's unfazed that the thing talks to him. He then starts an argument with the donkey. <laughs> Not, wow, you can talk, nope. Balaam is so out of control. Instead of pausing, he starts arguing with his animal. Because you have made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. So it seems like he tried to kill it with a stick. Talking donkey. Uh, and then verse 30, and then the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey? of which you have ridden all your life long to this day. Is it my habit to treat you this way? Crunch your foot and lay down? And he said, no. <laughs> you know, this is not one of those weird stories in the Bible because strange things used to happen back then. Can't we put that in that file? This is like the, when the weird stuff happened in the Bible. Now, this is both a rebuke and a sign. First, the rebuke, that Balaam the prophet is more beast-like than the actual beast, the donkey. And the donkey has become a being of reason while the prophet is punching and hitting like a beast without reason. Now, secondly, this is a sign that if God can use a dumb beast to speak God's word, godly word, then he can also use a man like Balaam, who is evil and ill-intent. God is showing his power and sovereignty even over evil, stubborn people here. And then verse 31, Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his sword drawn in his hand, and he pooped himself. No, it says, And he bowed down and his fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? I love the first thing out of the angel's mouth is, Why are you hitting your donkey? I love that. Come on, man. Now, the angel of the Lord, like the donkey, is asking Balaam why he would hit his animal who was protecting him uh, and why he's being a wicked man. Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. The donkey who Balaam beat up three times is revealed to be the hero of the story. 
Verse 34, Then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. And now Balaam knows, if you are going to represent God, you better be faithful. And so Balaam now knows he better stick to the script or else. There's no wiggle room to try to make some a little side hustle and get some cash. Now, one of the things we have to understand about the story of Balaam and his donkey is that this is not a self-contained story. But this is actually an introduction to the story of Balaam and Balak. This is an introduction piece. Uh, Now, the story of the donkey is God's way, again, of framing our, our thinking to help us understand what is about to transpire. So this is giving us context for what we're about to read. Verse 36. When Balak heard that Balaam had come, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab on the border formed by the Arnon at the extremity of the border. And Balak said to Balaam, did I not send to you to call you? Why did you not come to me? Am I not honorable to you? Now, we've been clued to something here. And you guys know I love numbers. Uh, Balaam traveled with two servants. That's a three. The angel appeared and opposed Balaam three times. Balaam beat his animal three times. The donkey asked Balaam three questions. And now the king of Moab asked Balaam three questions. Point being, we want to keep an eye out for the pattern of three. And like all numerology in scripture, where there are threes, there are often sevens. So we want to look for those two. Verse 38, Balaam said to Balak, behold, I have come to you. Have I now now any power of my own to speak anything? Uh, The word that God puts in my mouth, that must I speak. And isn't that a good start? I can't say anything past what God told me to see. And doesn't this need to be true of all Christians? I mean, this is the Christian story. We must be faithful witnesses. I love what Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28. It's terrifying. Fear not them which kill the body and are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus is very clear on this. Your fear and reverence of God needs to be much, much greater than any man. (laughs) Like, you can kill me a thousand times over, and I'm cool with it if God's cool with me, is is what we, where Christians need to be. Um, And Balaam learned this lesson from his donkey. Verse 39, then Balaam went with Balak, and they came to Kiriath Huzoth. Uh, I pass, that's a gold store that I pronounced that. And, and Balak sacrificed oxen and sheep and sent for Balaam and the, for the princes of Moab who were with him. And in the morning, Balaam took Balaam and brought him up to Bamoth Baal. And from there, he saw a fraction of the people. So he brings Balaam, uh, all, Balak brings Balaam all the way up to the top of a high mountain. Verse Numbers 23, verse 1. And Balaam said to Balak, build for me seven altars and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. Three sevens. Surprise, surprise. Balak did as Balaam had said, and Balak and Balaam offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And Balaam said to Balak, stand beside your burnt offering and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me and whatever he shows me, I will tell you. So 
Balak takes Balaam up to a high mountain and performs these 14 sacrifices on these seven altars and now awaits a word from, the, from God. And he, Balaam, went to, bear, to a bare height and God met Balaam. And Balaam said to him, I have arranged the seven altars and I have offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, return to Balak and thus shall you speak. And he returned to him and behold, he and all the princes of Moab were standing beside his burnt offering. And can't you see it? All the important people of Moab are standing beside their seven altars that they just sacrificed and they're ready for the curse. Uh, and, and <laughs> they've done the religious thing. They've prayed the prayers. They made the sacrifice. Now God is ready to work for them and to curse their enemies. Verse seven. And Balaam took up his discourse and said, from Aram, Balak has brought me the king of Moab from the eastern mountains. Come curse Jacob for me and come denounce Israel. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? And how can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? For from the top of the crags I see him. From the hills I behold and behold a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like this. And so Balaam gives a prophecy essentially saying, these people cannot be cursed. <laughs> Can't do it, Balak. They are separated to God for his special purposes. And then verse 11, And Balak, the king said to Balaam, What have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, and behold, you've done nothing less than bless them. And he, Balaam, answered and said, Must I not take care to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? I told you. I can only tell you what God tells me. Now you would assume Balak would be a person of reason and take a step back and realize he's dealing with God's people. But no, he doubles down. Verse 13, and Balak said to him, please come with me to another place from which you may see them and you shall see only a fraction of them and shall not see them all. Then curse them for me from there. So now Balak has this great idea. Well, this mountain didn't take. Let's try a new mountain. And so there they go. They go. If we go to a new mountain, then God might like that spot. And then, and then he took with him uh, to the field of Zophram, to the top of Pisgah, and built seven altars and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. And Balaam said to Balak, stand here beside your burnt offering while I meet the Lord over there. So again, the king of Moab with all of his princes are standing up top. And they've done the religious thing. They've prayed the prayers. They've made the sacrifices. And now they're hoping God will change his mind and kill the Israelites for them. Verse 16, And the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth and said, Return to Balak and thus shall you speak. And he came to him and behold, he was standing beside his burnt offering and the princes of Moab with him, with those dumb faces, looks on their faces, I'd imagine, uh, uh, with him. And Balak said to him, What has the Lord spoken? And Balaam took up his discourse and said, Rise, Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zippor. You guys ready? This is, this is great. This is gold. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. I love that. God basically starts with going, 
God does not change his mind, Balak. And he, has he said, and he, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Behold, I received the command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot revoke it. He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has seen trouble in Israel. The Lord their God is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt and is for them like the horns of the wild ox. For there is no enchantment against Israel. There's no divination against Israel. You can't curse them, Balak. Now it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, what has God wrought? Behold, a people as a lioness. It rises up as a lion. It's, uh, it lifts itself. It does not lie down until it devours the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. Now, what I love about this story is Balak's thinks he's being clever. He thinks he can manipulate the will of the gods or God. And God essentially goes, no. (laughs) And what's so funny to me is the first prophecy ended really bad for Balak, right? Like, these are a set-apart people. You're not going to win, dude. The second prophecy ended up being so much worse for Balak. Uh, (laughs) uh, Because now we're seeing not only are they a set-apart people, they are a set-apart people who are like lions who devour their enemies. Now, this is really bad news for Moab because they're the enemies about to be devoured. And so the more Balak pushes against God, the worse things get for him. Verse 25, And Balak said to Balaam, Do not curse them at all, and do not bless them at all. But Balaam answered Balak, Did I not tell you? All that the Lord says I must do. It's almost as if Balak goes, No, 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 no. You're not understanding this cursing thing, Balaam. I'm paying you money to curse them, not us. And Balaam's like, I can't do that, Balak. Verse 27, and Balak said to Balaam, come now. I will take you to another place. Perhaps it will please God that you may curse them from me there. So Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor, which overlooks the desert. And Balaam said to Balak, build for me here seven altars and prepare for me seven bulls and seven rams. That's a lot of barbecue. And Balak said to, and Balak did as Balaam had said and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. And now Balak is thinking third time's gotta be the charm. And so they ascend for the third time up a third mountain, kill 14 more animals. Can you imagine being the people that got to kill all these things and build these? They're probably drenching with sweat. And then, and they, you know, it's just, this is a mess. And I'd imagine, just as a fun note, I'd imagine as they were ascending that final mountain, you know Balak and the princes are looking at Balaam like, don't, don't mess this one up, man. (laughs) Numbers 24. When Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go, as at other times, to look for omens, but set his face toward the wilderness. And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe. And the Spirit of God came upon him. And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the word of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty, 
falling down with his eyes uncovered. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted like cedar trees beside the waters. Water shall flow from his buckets and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt. That's Jesus, by the way. And is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with his arrows. He crouched. He laid down like a lion and like a lioness who will rouse him. Blessed are those who bless you and cursed are those who curse you. And now Balaam, who has been hired to curse Moab's enemy, has just entered into a spirit-led song and blessing of praise for Moab's enemies, Israel. And remember, as the story began, the sight of Israel was a dread to the people of Moab. But to God and those with his spirit upon them, the sight of Israel is as beautiful as a grove, maybe even the Garden of Eden. And then verse 10, and Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam, and he struck his hands together. Aha! And now we see the point of the three. Now we see the point of the story of the donkey. The story began with Balaam riding his donkey and three times the donkey encounters the Lord and does the right thing. And on the third encounter, Balaam struck his donkey in rage to the point of trying to kill it. Then the donkey opens his mouth and and speaks to his master with rightful, God-given reason. The donkey became a faithful messenger of the Lord. Now here we are in the story of Balaam and Balak. And Balak has hired Balaam. He is his master. And three times Balaam encounters, the, encounters God and does the right thing. And on the third encounter, Balaam strikes his hand in anger because of Balaam. And he will, as we will read, will respond like the donkey with rightful God-given reasoning. And here's the point. Balaam, the evil king, or Balaam, the evil man, has become a faithful messenger of the Lord like the donkey. And Balak, the king, has become as unreasonable as Balaam was, like the beast. Then verse 10. And Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam, and he struck his hands together. And Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies. And behold, you have blessed them three times. Therefore now flee to your own place. Uh, place. I said, I will certainly honor you, but the Lord has held you back from honor. If you are ever dealing with corrupt, evil people, this is what they do. Balak essentially says, Balaam, I could have made you a rich man, but you messed it up. You messed up the good things I had planned for you. You could have been loved and honored and celebrated. We could have had Balaam Day in Moab, but you ruined it. You can tell, just a little pastor's tip here. You can tell a lot about a person's character by how they respond to no. Because evil people lash out when they do not get their way. And biblically speaking, 
The more someone departs from the Spirit of God, the more beast-like they become. And here we're seeing Balak act like a wild animal. And when you are dealing with truly evil people, this is what they do. Which is why, if you ever try to reason with really unreasonable people, what do they end up doing at the end of the conversation? They end up screaming and yelling because they're like beasts. This is what they have been given over to. And verse 12, let's keep going. And Balaam said to Balak, did I not tell your messengers whom you, whom you sent to me? If Balak should give me his house full of silver and gold, if you fill your whole palace up with silver and gold, I would not be able to go beyond the word of the Lord to do either good or bad of my own will. What the Lord speaks, that will I speak. And now behold, I am going to my people. Come, I will let you know what this people will do to your people in the later days. And this is great. Balaam says, I don't want to hear one more word out of you. And now Balaam, filled with the Spirit of God, is going to break into his own prophecy. Verse 15, and he took up his discourse and said, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is open, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of, God bless you, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. I shall, uh, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Seth. Edom shall be disposed. Seir also, his enemies, shall be disposed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of the city. So so Balaam was brought here to curse the Israelites. But now with this fourth prophecy, Balaam just cursed Moab. It just cursed not only Moab, but Moab and their allies, their neighbors. Then he looked on Amalek, verse 20, and took up his discourse and said, Amalek was the first among the nations, but its end is utter destruction. Fifth prophecy is against Amalek. And he looked on the Kenites and took up his discourse and said, Enduring uh, is your dwelling place, and your nest is set in the rocks. Nevertheless, Cain, uh, Cain shall be burned when Asher takes you away captive. And now Balaam is given the sixth prophecy, this time against the Kenites. And he took up his discourse and said, Alas, who shall live when God does this? But ship shall come from Kittim and shall affect Asher and Eber, and he too shall come to utter destruction. And Balaam gives his final seventh prophecy, might I add, and says, you all are in trouble. <laughs> and then Balaam rose and went back to his place, and Balak went his way. We're done our reading. Do you see how the donkey and that story are connected? It's so good. Uh, two thoughts. Two thoughts. I was so excited to teach this today. Uh, the, the first thing I want to say is Balak thought he could manipulate God. He thought he could approach God and manipulate him to his will. And when it didn't work, he doubled down and moved to a new mountain and tried again. And when that didn't work, he moved to a new mountain and tried again. Balak seemed to think if he made just the right statements accompanied by just the right type of sacrifices 
from just the right mountain, then God would do what he asked. And does it work? Of course not. This is what this story tells us. You cannot manipulate God. You are not smarter than God. You are not clever beyond God's eyes. No one has ever or will ever successfully manipulate the Lord. And let me tell you, sadly, people do what Balak is doing here all the time. Unfortunately, over the years, I have dealt with so many people who come into hardships, they come into trial, they come into some sort of problem, and they know they need help. They know they need divine intervention. And so they do exactly what Balak does here. They do something religious and see if it works. They go, to, they go to a church service and see if things get better. <laughs> you ever see people show up like you haven't seen them in 10 years? They come once and then they're gone again. Like, let's see if this mountain worked, God. And when that doesn't work, they attend, they attend a home group. I'll sing these weird songs with these people, sure. They give it a shot. And if it doesn't take, they move to a new mountain. And what Balaks don't realize is that if God is not looking for religious works and mountain scaling, he's looking for repentant, submissive hearts. If Balak just stopped trying to be clever and bowed his knees to God, and was kind to God's people, Moab, I have no doubt, would have been spared. And likewise, when the unbeliever, when the wayward gets into serious trouble, there is a way to peace with God. If they would renounce their cleverness and their old way of life and repent and truly submit to Jesus Christ, he would be with them. He would be for them. But unfortunately, and, and I have, and I, I'm not, I'm not, I have lost count of how many people I have seen do this. They hit trouble, they try the religious thing, and have no real intentions of changing their life or repenting. They just want to manipulate God towards their needs. You know, one of the things that happen when someone's been gone for 10 years, they come back and they say, that's it, I'm in church now. I really need this. So you know what I always say? And no one ever likes it and I don't care. I always say, we'll see. We'll see. And they almost never come back. Because there needs to be a genuine repentance. And if someone's genuinely repented, they come back without my encouragement. (laughs) God cannot be manipulated. And if people, if we would truly seek peace with God, then please know God is not looking for new mountaintops to sacrifice to him. Oh no, we we must seek peace. We must come to God through the means that he has provided. And that is through the death of his only begotten son. And this leads us to our second thought and what's been predominating my heart and mind all week Because this is true, then Psalm 46.10, then we as God's people must be still and know that he is God. 
Loved ones, sometimes, even as and especially as believers, isn't it really easy to chase mountaintops? Like every year I would go to these pastor's conferences and people were just trying to rekindle this thing. Well, you know, it's easy to chase mountaintops. It's, it's really easy, isn't it, to complicate our faith sometimes? <laughs> you know, we can learn so much about God. We can learn so much about his character and his nature, about being holy as he is holy, and what that looks like as we're working it out. And we, in our knowledge, we can become so consumed with what we are to do and not do. You ever been trapped in that cycle? God, just show me what to do. I don't know what to do. And we so, get so consumed with what we are to think and not think. That we get so consumed with what we're allowed to watch and not watch. What we're allowed to say and not say. And it's easy to become consumed with efforts and works. With what I as a believer need to do and not do to please God. You ever find yourself trying to ch- chasing to please God? And these thoughts can become Paralyzing. And overwhelming and joy-killing. And as believers, you know, we can end up creating a new type of law and placing ourselves under its burden. (laughs) Like, I'm not going to watch, listen to any more music or watch any television. Or we end up placing ourselves under some law that God never designed for us. (laughs) And sometimes we feel, you ever feel like you're not enough before God? You know, we we feel sometimes that we have to do, do, do. We got to stay busy for the Lord, brothers and sisters. And if we would just sacrifice on the right mountain, then, then maybe we will feel, we will be and feel like we're good with him. Then our faith would be perfect. Then God would be pleased if I just opened this orphanage or did this thing. Or you ever think, God, if I just grow a little bit more, then I'll get it. Then God will be happy. If I progress a little more, if I grieve a little more over my sins, if I did a little bit more witnessing, and then if we sacrifice this bull on this ram, on this mountain, then God would be pleased with me. You find yourself in these moments sometimes? If we added just a little bit more more to our faith, then God would be good with me. Then our faith would be where it needs to be. Then things would be right. If I just climb the right mountain, then we can rest and be assured. But loved ones, this is wrong. This is the wrong way to enjoy being a Christian. God doesn't need our bulls and rams. <laughs> he doesn't need us to find a new mountain. You are not going to be good with God once you volunteer at a hospital. He doesn't need new altars. What God wants from you, all God wants from you, is your heart. And specifically to set your heart upon his son, the lamb. In faith, we do not need to sacrifice bulls and lambs because the once for all sacrifice, the lamb, has already been slain for us. We don't need to find some new mountain to climb because Jesus already climbed Mount Calvary with that cross upon his back. Loved ones, Jesus is enough. We can get into an idolatrous relationship with ourselves. We work to become the authors of our salvation, and this is wrong. Jesus 
is enough. Be still and know that he is God. He scaled our mountains for us. He sacrificed for us. He paid for our sins. He made peace with the Father. Do you have eyes to see this? In faith, see all that God has done for his people. See what God has brought you out of when you look back at your life. And see what our Savior went through on the cross to save us. And you know, in our heart of hearts, I'd imagine for most of us, isn't it true? We, we read the Bible. We see that God saves us. We see that God loves us. We, we, we see all these glorious things. And isn't it true that we then want to do something for him? <laughs> we want to come to him with something. Isn't it true in some ways we want to ascend mountains? We want to praise rosaries. We want to we wanna say Hail Mary full of grace. We want to do something to contribute. We want to come to God with our hands full of works and say, look what I bring to the table. Look what I've done. Look at my works, Dad. We want to contribute. But loved ones, this is unnecessary to be loved and cherished by God. Be still and know that he is God. In many ways, this is what we can learn from today. God doesn't need superstars to accomplish his will. In today's story, who were the two heroes? It was an ill-intent man and a donkey who acted like a donkey. Dear ones, we can get so wrapped up in our performance and what we bring to the table and what we can do for God. And this is not the way. Be still and rest in God. We need to rest in the finished work of the cross and set your heart to the sun and be still and know that it is finished. In the opening chapter of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 3, there's this incredible verse. He is the radiance of the glory of God, Jesus is, and and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. When Jesus accomplished the work on the cross, it says he sat down. Family, You bring nothing to the table that God doesn't already possess. If he upholds the universe with his word, what are you going to bring to God? What God wants from his people is not a new mountain to climb, but our hearts. It's, It's that we would rest in the finished work of the cross. As we read, when Jesus ascended to heaven, he sat And he sat at the right hand of the Father. And do you know why he sat at the right hand of the Father? Because the work of salvation was done. It was finished. Jesus said on the cross it is finished. There was no more mountains to climb. That was the last mountain. He ascended the last mountain for his people on Mount Calvary. It was the last bull and goat. It was the last sacrifice that ever needed to be sacrificed. And so this is what I want to say this Father's Day, is set your heart to the finished work of the Son and enjoy Dad. Enjoy Dad. He does not need you to scale any mountains today. He doesn't need you feeling bad that you're not climbing fast enough. 
Just give him your heart and be grateful that it is finished. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. God, we, we love you. We, we thank you for this story. Thank you for the book of Numbers. How cool is this book? At some point, you rain quail. I'd love to see that. Uh, God, you're so good to your people. Jesus, you reminded us in your earthly ministry, all those who were weary or heavy laden, that that means spiritually crushed. And God, sometimes we can crush ourselves and create laws and burdens. And this is not what you have for us. You said that the joy of the Lord is our strength. But without joy in you, there's not much strength. And so, God, we ask that you would place in our hearts, God, an outpouring of your spirit. Let let your spirit come upon and within us that you would break us of all cleverness, of all idolatry, of all boasting, and that you would help us just see the finished work of your Son and enter into a praise and a joy and a rest unlike we have ever experienced. And where we seek to deviate from your truth, God, reel us back in and remind us, remind us that it is finished. Let us be still today and know that you are God and just celebrate in all that you have provided for that. Let us celebrate. And in Jesus' name, all who agreed said, Amen. Thanks for joining us for today's message from Calvary Baltimore. Please keep in touch. Send us an email with your questions, prayer requests, or just to say hi. We'd love to hear from you. Our email address is calvary.faithlife at gmail.com. If you'd like to donate to support the work God is doing through Calvary Baltimore, go to calvarychapelbaltimore.org and click Donate Now. And if you're in the area, stop by on a Sunday morning. For directions and service times, go to our website at calvarychapelbaltimore.org. Finally, if you're unable to come see us in person, we also live stream on our website and on our Facebook page. We hope you've been blessed by this week's teaching. Until next time, keep drawing closer to God through the reading of His Word. And join us again for the next Calvary Baltimore Sermon Podcast.